Well, good morning, friends. Let me encourage you to come and find a seat. And let me welcome you to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church. My name is Duncan. I serve as the pastor here. And we're delighted that you've been able to come and to join with us to worship the Lord today. Good morning. The reading this morning is from the book of Exodus, chapter 13, verses 1 to 16. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which, this, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in his month. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day, there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord brought you, has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute as at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opened the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of a man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb but all the first son, firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Well, please do take a seat and turn back with me to Exodus chapter 13. If you have a Bible, please um, turn that up. If not, the verses we're looking at are printed inside 
the diary today, and I really encourage you to have that in front of you, not least of all because, well, we want to make sure that what we're saying is taken from God's Word and not just my spin on it. So please do follow along. Satnavs, that's my opening today, satnavs. Um, they are a wonderful gift. If someone asks you to meet them somewhere, maybe even in a town or a city that you don't know at all, uh, without any advanced preparation, as long as you've got the address, you can get there. Get in the car, put the address in, listen to the instructions, and off you go. However, they do have some drawbacks. And one of the biggest is that it tends to cause drivers to switch off their brains. A surprisingly high number of motor motorists have driven into a river because the sat-nav said to do so. I'm not looking for confessions just yet. And in a more subtle way than that, though, when I follow a sat-nav, I am not taking in the journey. I'm always thinking about one thing, and it's just, well, what's the next move? So much so that when I get to the destination, if someone was to ask me, now, do you know your way back out of here? Almost definitely, I would say, there's no way. I don't remember it at all. I was following the instructions, but I wasn't paying attention to the route that got me here. There was a similar danger facing the people of God in the book of Exodus. This book of the Bible describes hugely significant events that happened in the history of God's ancient people, Israel. It's a story of how God took them from slavery in Egypt, built them into a nation, and made them His people. It's a story of how they went from being slaves to Pharaoh to being servants of God. And it was no small thing. We've been working through this book. Pharaoh's hard heart resisted God's patient command to let his people go, and it was disastrous for the nation of Egypt. The nation was stripped of its health, of its comfort, of its food supply, and ultimately was stripped of their firstborn children, all because a stubborn king would not submit to God. And if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, we saw that God keeps His Word. You know, the threatened judgment that, would take, um, that God threatened that would take every firstborn of man and beast, it came to pass. But for the Israelites, they followed God's promise that the way to be kept safe from His judgment was by the slaughter of a lamb, daubing its blood on the doorframe so that when God saw the blood of the Lamb, He passed over those houses. Pharaoh, broken with grief, ordered the Israelites to leave, and 430 years in Egypt was brought to an end in one night. God brought the whole nation out. And the verses we come to today in Exodus chapter 13, they are set on the day after the night before. And it's a series of instructions for what Israel must do in the light of their rescue from slavery, instructions that would shape this people for thousands of years, but instructions with a simple purpose, that they would not be like someone 
following a sat-nav, safely arriving at their destination, but no recollection of what route they took to get there, God says to His people, never forget how you got here. Never forget how you got here. And we see this in verse 3, and you almost picture these Israelites. They have come out of Egypt. Their old home in Egypt has just passed over the horizon behind them. This massive caravan of people draws to a halt because Moses has got something to deliver to them. And here's what he says, remember this day. That's what he says in verse 3, remember this day. And look at what it is they are to remember. I'll try and bring this out for you. Verse 3, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out from the house of slavery. The Lord brought you out from this place. Verse 4, today you are going out. Verse 9, with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. This is the journey they have taken. They've been brought out, and they are never to forget it. But more than just saying, now guys, remember, Moses gives them means to remember. And in doing so, we learn that the life freed from slavery has a new shape. The life freed from slavery has a new shape. And how precious that would be to God's people. God wasn't done with them here. It wouldn't be much consolation for God to say, there you go, I have released you from slavery and simply leave them on their own in the desert. They wouldn't survive. And you see here again the promise that God not only takes them out of Egypt, but has promised from the very beginning, and again here in verse 5, to take them in to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey bursting with natural fruitfulness, but they are never to forget how they got there. When the Lord brings you into the land, you shall keep this service in this month. That's still verse 5. And the people are introduced to a new feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This came up in chapter 12, which we looked at before the summer break. Um, so we won't go into all of that again, but leaven was the agent used to cause bread to rise, the equivalent of our yeast. And from verse 3 through to verse 7, Moses makes reference to no leaven or unleavened um, five times. It's, it's, it's an important thing for them to get in here, to their brains here. For a whole week, they were to eat unleavened bread. For that time, verse 7, there was to be no leaven within all your territory. And on the seventh day, there was to be a feast to the Lord. Well, why? Well, it was a direct reminder of this day when the Lord brought them out of Egypt. Because the Israelites had, had to leave Egypt in such a hurry that they didn't have time to leaven the bread. No time to put it in the proving drawer and let it double its volume. They had to grab it as it was and go. It was a reminder that the Lord had brought them out of slavery with a mighty hand. It hadn't been a, 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 
a smooth negotiation of terms over a period of months, and they could set a departure date. It was like that. This night we're going, and it was all the Lord's doing. This would be part of who they are now. Not a year would go by without this being planned in the springtime. They cleaned the house every spring to get rid of any trace of leaven that there might be. They would set aside the lamb to eat in remembrance of the Passover lamb. They would gather as a family. They ate flat bread for a week. And this was part of their new pattern of living. No longer, no longer making bricks, no longer building cities for, Pharaoh's, for Pharaoh. And here's a new pattern, a pattern of grateful remembrance and of worship to God. This feast is part of their new identity as God's nation. They were forever to be the people whom God delivered from slavery. They were forever to be this people who could not get past what God had done for them. And there's something more to this as well. Later in the Bible, leaven would become a symbol of corruption, one of those things that a small amount of it works its way through a whole batch of dough and, and puffs it up. And so too, the removal of leaven became symbolic of a life cleansed from corruption. And certainly when we come to the New Testament, this image is taught by Jesus Himself and by the apostles. Paul specifically picks up on this Jewish feast and says, Christians, you need to understand symbolically what this feast means for us. Paul wrote about it when he was trying to help a church to understand uh, some important principles. They had, they had forgotten, a church that had forgotten how they got to where they were. In particular, there was sexual sin in the church. It was not only being ignored, but actually some people were boasting about it. See how free we are? And Paul has to remind them that the life that has been freed from slavery has a new shape. He says to them, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. It's a strange picture, isn't it? Paul says Christians are like a lump of dough that has had the yeast cleansed out of it. And too often we want to put it back in. We live with unrepentant sin and corruption. And the tendencies that lie within all our hearts remain the same today. You see, Moses says, and later Paul would say, never forget how you got here, because if you forget how you got here, then your life will take on the wrong shape. You'll still be living back in slavery if you forget that it was God who took you out to make you into something else. I wonder if I could speak to anyone here who isn't a Christian. Uh, we all, naturally speaking, are enslaved. And we might at first resist that idea, but actually we just need to look around us and look in our own hearts to see that we really are slaves to our own desires. And those desires that we naturally have are sinful. And I say that confidently because 
The Bible says a life lived for any other reason than for God is one that is lived in rebellion against Him. And the natural desires that come out of our hearts are not ones that say, oh, I really want to live for God. No, we need to be changed. And praise God, He has sent His Son to rescue from slavery, to break the power of sin over the sinner, and to make them into something new. No longer a slave to sin, but a child of God, a servant of God. And He does that, the Lord Jesus does that by sacrificing Himself. He is the true Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when you look at Jesus, you see the Son of God become a man, live a perfect life, die a sinner's death, rise a victorious resurrection, all of these things that none of us can do, but all things that were for you, if you believe in Jesus. When you trust this Jesus, then your sins are forgiven, and the Holy Spirit dwells within and makes a new creation. And that is what we hold out to everyone from this church. Week by week, day by day, that's, that's what we want to hold out to everyone. It's the Lord Jesus who does all of this for sinners, sinners like me and like you. Jesus Christ is the only one who can make us right with God, the only one who can restore the purpose for which God made us, and that purpose is to live and to die for Him. And if you're a Christian here today, if you belong to Jesus Christ, then this is a message that has to come to us, isn't it? Jesus does not leave us unchanged. He doesn't rescue us from slavery and leave us on our own in the desert. He brings us into a new land, gives us new desires, gives us new abilities to worship Him, to honor Him, to glorify Him, to be used by Him. And if we aren't seeing that in our lives, there's a pretty good chance that the reason is because we've forgotten how we got here. It was the Lord Jesus Christ who took you out of slavery to bring you into this new land. Look at what was given. Look at, look at the demonstration of God's power that was on display when your sins were dealt with on the cross of Jesus Christ, when the death that you deserve was overcome by the resurrected Lord Jesus. Well, there's another ceremonial instruction given to the people in our passage, one that I think is a little harder for us to understand. And the key to understanding it is remembering how God delivered His people from judgment. The tenth plague that fell on Egypt was pronounced against the firstborn of every family. But God had given instructions of how to keep the firstborn safe, to shelter under the blood of the Lamb. And it was a gracious act on God's part. He chose to save those firstborn who sheltered under the blood of the Lamb. There's a sense in which those firstborn were gods by right. He had made the declaration, hadn't he? And a ritual was put in place here as a reminder that what is bought by God belongs to God. What is bought by God belongs to God. And you'll, I hope we'll see that that is very much the tone of the ritual here. From the very beginning, verse, uh, verse 2 of chapter 13 the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. 
God's speaking about something that is his possession, something that is his right. Every firstborn, human or animal, is, you come to verse 12, is to be set apart. So, the instructions for this are given from verse 11 to 16, and there are three categories that are given for us. Verse 12 seems to refer to the firstborn of every clean animal. Um, You shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord. So, sheep, goat, cattle, they are set apart to the Lord. And in setting them apart, they are offered to the Lord. They are sacrificed, given as an offering to Him. They belong to Him. And then verse 13, you've got mention of the donkey, which probably confused us a little bit. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. It seems that the donkey represents unclean animals. The donkey was an unclean animal. It wasn't, wasn't something you could bring as a sacrificial offering. It was unclean. And so, instead, the Lord still owned this firstborn animal. You could redeem it. You could sacrifice a lamb in its place and keep the donkey. Or if not, then the animal had to be put down. Now, we might think that sounds harsh, but the truth is, the animal was the Lord's from the very start. He gets to decide what happens to it. It was never to be for a human purpose unless it's redeemed, and so you don't get to keep what belongs to God. And then there's the crucial third category at the end of verse 13, every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And here is this pattern to Jewish life post-slavery. Every time a new family was started, the firstborn son comes along, and he is to be brought to the Lord and redeemed, redeemed with a sacrifice. The child's life, which the Lord had spared, by rights was the Lord's to claim, was redeemed. The innocent animal slain in the place of the child. But more than that, it seems that these sons were actually given to serve the Lord in some way. When you come to Exodus 19, which we do hope to get to soon-ish, we find that there are priests among the number of the Israelites, but there's been no rules about priests given to the people yet. It seems that this group, these firstborns who were set apart for the Lord, had some role of service. Now, later on, that would change. You'll find that as you read through the book of Numbers. I don't want to go into that. Um, but while the life of the firstborn was, re- but the life of the firstborn was redeemed soon after birth, they belonged to the Lord. And I think this was to speak powerfully to the nation of Israel. And I say that because there's a verse that we've read a few times as we've gone through this book. And it's found in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. It's such a profound thing that God said about his people, Israel is my firstborn son. So that what was happening for this small group within Israel was surely a pointer to an even bigger principle. The whole of the people of God are his firstborn. They all owe their life to Him. As such, they are all set apart to Him. And you don't need to read far into the story of Israel's history to find they did not live up to this. 
Well, in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is born, another firstborn son. And in Luke chapter 2, we read of him being taken to the temple to be dedicated. And in fact, Luke quotes these verses in Exodus 13 to explain what's happening. Well, it's because Jesus is a firstborn son, and, and then they're being obedient to the law, redeeming him. He's fulfilling God's law. He is set apart for the Lord. But there'd never been one set apart quite like this one. Here was one who was truly set apart, obedient to God in every way. Jesus Himself would say that He only ever does the will of His Father in heaven. And yet for this firstborn son, there was to be no deliverance. There was only death ahead for him. He would give himself in the place of others. Jesus is the true firstborn son, and all who believe in him are united to him by faith, and we too become firstborn sons of God in him. And what we cannot escape is that as God's children, He describes them as being set apart for Him. We understand then that what has been bought by God belongs to God. And if you belong to Jesus Christ today, that is describing you in the fullest possible way. God did not spare His own Son so that you might be set apart for Him. And there are two areas where that will play out, certainly in our passage here in Exodus 13. And the first one is this unusual phrase that's used twice in these verses um, in relation to both of these ceremonies given to Israel. Look at verse 9. It shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. And you find something very similar is said in verse 16 about the, the redeeming of the firstborn. Now, some Jews took these words very literally, and some still do, and they made small boxes, and inside those boxes were parts of the Word of God, and they strapped them onto their arm or even onto their forehead like here, saying, between the eyes. But I think the key word is the word as, because another word for as is the word like, and that changes it a little bit, doesn't it? It shall be to you like a sign on your hand and like a memorial between your eyes. It's speaking here of the effect that these new patterns of living will have on God's people as they celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as they redeem the firstborn, it will have this effect of pressing the Word of God upon them all the time. It's like they will not be able to, to look in any direction without having the Word of God dominating them, you see? And the aim of that to be that the Word will be in your mouth, or maybe a phrase we would use is on your lips. The Word will be so pressed upon them as they keep turning again to be reminded of God's saving work. 
And just as we need to keep being turned to be reminded of the gospel. Because if we don't do that, we will forget that we have been bought by God. We will start to think that we brought ourselves to Him instead. You know, each one of us in this room, we need the gospel. We need the Word of God read and proclaimed, the spiritual food that comes to us in Christ through the Lord's Supper. We need these things. And they're to be like these boxes of Scripture on our foreheads, on our hands. They're with us all the time so that we never forget how we got here. Let this reality of what Jesus Christ has done for you be like this message that will not leave you and shapes everything you do so that your lips just pour out the gospel in praise to God and in proclamation to others. Well, there's a second area where this pattern of living will have an effect. Um, And Moses anticipates that in both of these ceremonies, it will raise questions and particularly will raise questions in the minds of children, and especially those who didn't witness Israel's rescue from slavery firsthand. And what is the question that they're asking? It's, what does this mean? You see that in verse 14, when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? And the answer is quite simple. By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And then there's the explanation of the detail. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. Not afraid to keep on explaining how we got here. It's so that the next generation doesn't forget how we got here. That's what happens in the life of Israel here. These reminders, they shape us into God's people, and they are to shape the next generation too. This has come up already in Exodus, but I want to give you a solid principle for how you read your Bible. If the biblical writer tells you something more than once, it's because he wants you to think about it more than once. It's important. And that's what we see in the passing on to the next generation Passing on to them the story of how God redeems His people, it's important. And how how do we think we're doing with that in our generation? Um, I'm, I'm personally in the midst of this, as many of you are, with three young children, and from first-hand experience and from observation, I think we all can recognize how easy it is for life in all of its busyness to squeeze out time and energy for teaching little ones the important things about how we got here, of teaching them the gospel. My own faltering efforts are testimony enough. But I will say this, whatever the challenges may be, children see far more clearly than we realize at times they very quickly realize what our understanding of the gospel is. They understand if it's all about how wonderful Jesus is 
and how amazing the grace He has shown me is, or if it's all about how good we have to be and how it's important that we must please God. They'll pick that up pretty quickly. And very soon, children discern what our greatest desire is for them as well. Maybe it's that they would have friends, that they would have achievements, whether they be academic or sporting, or maybe that more than anything else in the world, we want them to know and love the Lord. However faltering our efforts are, kids will discern what our greatest desire is for them. And at the very least, we're seeing here in Exodus 13 that from whenever a child is old enough to ask the question, what does this mean? Then we need to be ready to have those conversations. And we need to be doing the things that set up those conversations. You know, they didn't hide the Feast of Unleavened Bread from their kids. They didn't hide the fact that they broke the donkey's neck from their kids. You thought about that? because they wanted the children to look on and say, why are we doing this? And a parent can say, I'm so glad you've asked me, because this is the most important thing you can hear. And as a church here, we're trying to support that kind of thing. Mark has been sending out in the last couple of weeks a, a toolbox for parents, providing some resources for families to get together and to talk about what we believe. And we see here that the Israelites include their children in their worship. And that's why we purposely have children present each month when we share in the Lord's Supper. Yes, it sometimes makes it a bit more disrupted. Sometimes we do it quicker than we would really like to. But we want to be setting this up, don't we, so that our children are asking us, what does this mean? Why do we do this? These are the most precious things we can do. And hey, I'm praying that some of you will have those questions over lunch today. I need to mention again, we've got an upcoming day conference in November, Raising Kids for Christ. It's exactly tapping into this principle that we're reading of here. Oh, we need this. We need this. Do sign up to that if you can. Junior Church Bible class, they are there to support this most precious part of Christian life. And we all, we all in this church have a responsibility for the, for the children who belong to this church family, but the primary burden falls on parents where possible. And we as a church family want to support you to do that well, because there's no more important thing we can do for our kids than tell them about the gracious Savior who died and rose again to rescue undeserving sinners like them. And no greater desire that we can have for them than that they would love Jesus Christ, even if nothing else works out. And if that's the case, then we take these words of Scripture to heart because we cannot be those things for the next generation in this church family if we ourselves have forgotten how we got here. Brothers and sisters, you've been released from slavery to sin, and life has a new pattern. You belong to God to live for Him. So let me urge you to come again and be refreshed by the good news of what Jesus has done for you. Let's pray for a moment. Father, we thank You for your word, we thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray, Father, that it is only… Lord, I pray that it would only be the sharpness of your word by your Spirit that we would feel here. 
Lord, may anything that has been of me just fall to the ground unnoticed. But Lord, where you are speaking to us as a church, as individual families, as, as an individual standing before you now, Lord, we pray that you would impress upon our hearts that Jesus has everything that we need and is sufficient for all our needs. Oh, Father, help us to be a people who never forget how we got here, but in fact delight to remember the journey of what Jesus has done to bring us out of slavery and into new life. We ask for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.